Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. That was particularly beautiful. Well, good morning. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 1. We're making it, church. Come on. It's the first Sunday of February. We're coming to the Lord's table, as is our custom. So if you are part of this church or you are a Bible-believing Christian that believes the same gospel that we preach here, you're welcome to come to this table with us at the end of this sermon, as is our custom on the first Sunday of the month, to remember the Lord's work on the cross through the meal that he has called us to receive together regularly. What a privilege. What a privilege. It's chilly. It's rainy. Things aren't all quite like they should be, but God is in utter control, and we're here now. And we have been able, unlike many of our brothers and sisters around the world, to sing to the Lord. We can open up our Bibles and put them on our laps, and we can think deeply about the most important truths in the universe. That is a great privilege. And it is reason to be thankful and to lean forward this morning. As you're finding John chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 14 through 18. This is the end of the introduction of the Gospel of John. It's what we call the prologue, where John is, in a sense, highlighting. He's tipping us off to the major themes that will be in the rest of of the letter. And from here on out, it will be not so much densely compact theology like he's given us here in these first 18 verses, but scenes in the life of Jesus that he's intending to draw out for us who Jesus is. So I'm looking forward to working through these five verses with you. And as Springer said, I just want to highlight a couple weeks. We're going to start a Galatians study on Sunday night. Um, I'm on what we call a retractions tour. Uh, and by that I mean uh, Galatians is one of the first books of the Bible that when we started this church 16 years ago that I preached through, and there's some messes on aisle six that I want to clean up. <laughs> and so, so we're going back through Galatians uh, just to re- retract. Martin Luther, the great reformer, at the end of his life wrote a little book called Retractions. And so I'm on my, my Retractions tour. Uh, let me pray, and, and then I'm going to read the text. And then in this text, I see three truths about Jesus that I want us to see this morning. And as I pray, pray with me that God would help us, uh, that he would help me get out of the way, and that what would be clearest would be the person and work of Jesus. So pray with me. Lord, thank you for this day. You have divine, sovereign, particular universal and personal purposes for each of us that are in this room. Lord, show us wonderful things out of your book. May your word, just like the rain that is falling, not return void. May you convict, strengthen. May you wound and may you heal. May you sanctify your people, make them more like your son, and may any that are in this room or listening online that do not know you, may you give them the miracle of sovereign grace. May you take their dead, unbelieving heart and make it alive so they can trust in Jesus. 
Use me, Lord, I pray, to be a means of grace, an instrument. And Lord, be glorified this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John writes, starting in verse 14, And the Word, capital W, speaking of Jesus, remember from the first few verses, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace Upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. There's so much in this text. I'm going to try and reduce it down to three truths for us to see about Jesus. Three truths about Jesus from this passage. First is that Jesus is truly God and truly man. And with each truth that we look at, we're going we're gonna to try and apply it to our text. So first, to our hearts. Jesus is truly God and truly man. Look again at verse 14. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This phrase, dwelt among us, is just a, a beautiful phrase, and it's, maybe it might be more literally translated for people in the first century as they were thinking about this language that John would have been using in their language. It, would, it, 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 can, it carries with it more than the idea of just being with, but would, it would have caused, especially Jewish Hebrew-speaking readers, to think back to the Old Testament where oftentimes the presence of God was spoken of as dwelling with his people in the sense of that God pitched his tabernacle. He pitched a tent in the lives of Israel and he, he dwelt with them in this tent. So in a sense what John is saying here as he's drawing his readers back to the scenes in Exodus where God tells Moses to pitch a tent, and in fact calls it a tent of meeting, and he's saying, there I will dwell with you. And so Moses did that. In fact, specifically in Exodus chapter 33, for example, there's this beautiful scene where Moses makes this tent. It's a tent of meeting, and Israel would all have their tents surrounding it, and people would stand at the entrances of their own personal tents as Moses would go to this tent of meeting, and he would meet with God in a pillar, a cloud would descend on this 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 tent of meeting where Moses would go in, and it says in Exodus 33 that God would speak to Moses, and this is remarkable, as a friend speaks with another friend. And then Moses would come out, and he would instruct the people. And that's the imagery that John is drawing out here in this, this idea that Jesus is, and this is really a proof of Jesus' divinity, his who he is as God, that God himself is now not just dwelling occasionally 
in a tent speaking sporadically with Moses, but he's here now. We have seen him. And then the next phrase John says in verse 14 is that we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. And this phrase glory in the Bible is so rich. In the Old Testament, you've probably heard of this phrase, the Shekinah glory of God. Again, that's, that's hearkening back to the way the glory of God was described in Exodus. And specifically in Exodus chapter 40, for example, there was this scene where the glory of God in the tent of meeting, the Shekinah glory being the Hebrew word of God, was so intense that Moses couldn't go into the tent. The glory of the Lord was so, in a sense, heavy and it was unapproachable. And in fact, if you're reading with us in the five-day reading plan, you've, you've read about how the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire followed Israel after the exodus that we just read about in this morning as Jay opened us up with the call to worship from Exodus 15 and God parts the Red Sea. And then, then Israel is led by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And then later on in Exodus, we see this, this cloud hovering over the tent in Exodus 40, so intense. In fact, this word glory means the heaviness of the presence of God, so intense that Moses can't even approach it. But here, John is saying that this glory, that he's wanting them to see this connection with the Old Testament presence of God, is now come near to us and we can see it, in fact, we can touch it in the person of Jesus. This is amazing what John is saying. The veil, in a sense, the, the thing that would separate man from God because of God's holiness and man's sinfulness is being taken down in the person of Jesus who is God come to us. Truly God and truly man. Now, when just this phrase, Jesus is truly God and truly man, is a phrase that comes from church history, and it's a phrase that Christians have used for some 1,600 years now to try and describe who Jesus is. And it comes from this, this creed or this council in the history of the church in the year 451 A.D., so some 400 years after Christ, the early church is thinking through, they have the Bible, and they're thinking through what the Bible says, and they're developing really doctrine about who God is, and who man is, and who Christ is in his person. And one of the controversies, this is really important for you to know, you think, oh, Brad's a history lesson, I came to church today, come on, preach, come on, this is part of it now, come on. I want you to know this because people fought deeply for centuries over these things and we are the beneficiaries of how our brothers and sisters in centuries past have worked thoughtfully through the Bible and they didn't have YouTube to distract them so they could think more than 30 seconds at a time. And they came up with this Chalcedonian Creed, which was this church council that over the period of several years, pieced together and hammered out and thought deeply about 
the doctrine of the person of Christ. Because one of the problems in the early church is that the early church would often err on one side or the other. They would either take away from the full divinity of Jesus, meaning that he's not, they see that he's truly man, but he's not fully God. And that, that error still exists with us today in many modern-day cults. And, or they would fall over on the other side, that Jesus, yes, he's truly God, but he isn't really fully man, which has all sorts of other terrible implications for our understanding of the Bible. And so these early Christians in this Chalcedonian creed that they came up with were trying to articulate this mystery of the person of Jesus Fully God, fully man, or truly God and truly man together as one. And they came up with this phrase. I won't read it, but you can Google the Chalcedonian Creed later on today and read it. And and I think it will bless you. you. You have to read it slowly. But essentially they were saying that Jesus is two natures in one person. That he has two natures. He is truly man. And yet he's truly God. And of these two natures, they said that they're unconfused or inconfusedly, they're unchangeable. He's indivisible. He's inseparable. But they say that even though he has two natures, man and God, that he is only one person. He's not parted or divided into two people, but he is one son. He's one God. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's two persons in one nature. Now, you may think, Brad, why is this important? Well, this gets to the very heart of the gospel itself because listen to the logic of the scriptures telling us why the humanity, the real humanity of Jesus and the real divinity of Jesus joined together in one person are essential for our salvation. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 2, verse 17. Just as one verse I think shows us the importance of rightly understanding who Jesus is. The writer of Hebrews says, again, inspired by the Holy Spirit, without error, he says, therefore he, speaking of Jesus, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. All right, now let me, let's, let's look back through that verse and think about it, because if you see the logic of God in the writing of this verse, you see a lot. Okay, I want you to see this. Okay, it says, therefore, he had, there was a, there was a necessity to Jesus being fully man and fully God. Now, why did that have to be? Why did Jesus have to be a man, fully man, and fully God in order to accomplish our salvation? Who's doing the compelling? Who is putting the necessity on the fact that Jesus has to be like this? God himself. And that's important because you may say, well, why did it have to be like that? And those are okay questions to ask when you're sitting around with your friends discussing the Bible. Why does it have to be like this? Well, that's a good question. Why did God allow the fall? Why did Jesus have to be two natures in one person? Those are legitimate questions, but the wisdom of it exists at some point outside of us. The answer, and I don't mean to be trite, and I don't mean to just 
just to sort of poo-poo thoughtfulness, but sometimes the answer is because God is God and he decided it would be that way. And I think that's, that's what's going on at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore he had, who's doing the making? Who is imposing on God that it had to be like this? Nobody except for God. This is God's glorious plan of redemption in eternity past. It's saying that he had to be made like his brothers. That's us. In every respect. In Hebrews 4, it tells us that Jesus was, is, was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. So that tells me that there's nothing. There's no depression. There's no mood. There's no situation. There's no thing that I'm facing. There's nothing that we go through that Jesus has not tasted on our behalf sinlessly. He is a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. So he must be truly man because we have a God that has come to us. He's like us. He's not in the heavens with his arms crossed looking disgusted at us when we are tempted or even when we fall. He's a gentle savior, a merciful high priest. But he says that he was like this to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That word propitiation means that he was an acceptable, wrath-absorbing, judgment-satisfying sacrifice for us on behalf of our sin before God. So not only is he just a man who can sympathize with us, but he's also the infinite holy God because the only one who can satisfy the holiness of God is the righteousness of God. So Jesus isn't just a good man. He is the eternally holy, infinitely holy righteousness of God. So do you see both of those things are essential? I've told you before that, uh, that I am a sucker for infomercials. And I remember years ago, they used to sell this rag I think it was like the, the wonder rag or the ShamWow rag or whatever. And you could literally spill a, a bucket of Coke or, you know, soda. And this magic rag would wipe up all the soda, right? It's like, and there was this crazy dude that looked like he was just high on uppers, you know, just, ah, you know. I, I, I bought a couple of them. <laughs> They're probably in a drawer somewhere or whatever. But, but I, I want you to... I want you to see that, in a sense, that's what this word propitiation, it's, it absorbs all the wrath of God. It wipes up all the wrath of God. It satisfies all the judgment against us. Charles Spurgeon said that Jesus, in his work on the cross, listen to this, drinks damnation dry. That's a great phrase. And that's what propitiation means. He turns the wrath of God into the favor of God. He doesn't only die for our sins. He gives us his righteousness. And the only one who can give us his righteousness is not just a good man, but God himself. And so Jesus is truly man and truly God. This is the essence, the very heart of the gospel. When you say that Jesus is God the Son bearing the wrath of God the Father so that he might save us.
John Murray, I'll just, I'll just give you a, a beautiful quote in the history of the church to kind of let us press into this a little bit. John Murray was a Scottish theologian that lived uh, you know, in the early 1900s and then came to the United States. He was actually in the Scottish army and fought in World War I. He was part of what would be the equivalent of the Scottish Rangers, so he was, he was a tough dude. Uh, was injured in World War I, then he became a theologian and came here to America to be a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. And he wrote this about this idea of the incarnation of Jesus, the two natures of Jesus, truly God, truly man. Listen to this quote. This is, I think, really helpful. He says, anyone who reads the New Testament with the humility of believing devotion and therefore with the reverence begotten of faith must be overcome again and again with the mystery that surrounds the person and work of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As understanding expands and as reverent inquiry seeks to push further and deeper, there grows upon the believer the marvel of the Savior's person and work. Now listen to this last line. A deep chord of intelligent acquiescence is struck in the believing reader. What does that phrase mean, intelligent acquiescence? It means that as clear-headed, thinking people, we come to the Bible and we see verses that tell us that Jesus is fully God, truly God, the creator. John 1, 1, in the beginning with God, the word was God. He is uncreated. He's co-equal. We see this beautiful, unexplainable, incomprehensible truth of the Trinity and the divinity of Jesus. But we also see, and we'll see in John, that he is truly a man, that he hungers and he thirsts and he has sorrows and he's acquainted with grief and he knows us and he's tempted as we are. How we see these things, that's the intelligent thoughtfulness of Scripture. We see these things, but we do get to a point where we say, how can these two things fit together? How can he be truly God and truly man? This most glorious of all truths cannot be fully explained. And that's when intelligence gets to the end of the road. And this word acquiescence or submission or marvel or wonder at the glory of God must take over. But you see, both of them are important. Think through these things. And then when we get to the end of human capability to fully understand, we lift up our eyes and we say, oh, the glory of God in the face of his son, Jesus Christ. Which brings me to the application of this truth before we run on to truth number two is that, is that seeing his glory, Jesus' glory as truly God and truly man, I think is the most important thing we can do when we come to the Bible. Seeing, seeing the person and work of Jesus, seeing that. The Bible should not be approached primarily as a guidebook for life, although it is that. I don't mean to diminish that at all. It's full of principles and precepts and commands and exhortations about how we are to live the blessed life. 
But if you keep your head down, so to speak, and that's all you're seeing from the Bible, you will miss, I think, the ultimate message of the Bible, which is the glory, the marvel of the person and work of Jesus. And when you see something so incomprehensibly, indescribably, uncontainably glorious, what it does is it changes your soul. Beholding God is to be changed by God. And I think we see that in Scripture. I think we see that in 2 Corinthians 3. Beholding the glory of God, Paul says, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. And so let's, let's have an eye to see who Jesus truly is. Truth number two, Jesus is full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. Look again at verse 14, the end of it. He says, okay, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father. Then look at the end there of verse 14. Such a glorious phrase. He is full of grace and truth. Grace and truth, which we are prone to pit against each other as if they are at odds, but they are in complete unison in the person of Jesus. This reminds me of maybe my favorite historic sermon in the history of the church from Jonathan Edwards, The Excellency of Christ, The Diverse Excellency of Christ. And Edwards preached this sermon on this verse in Revelation chapter 5, where John, the same John that wrote this gospel, is picturing Christ in his revelation. And he says that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he's also the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth. He's a lion and a lamb. He's full of truth and grace. And this diversity of excellencies joins itself together in Christ. And we see this in in the Bible. Jesus has come, and he is full of truth. He is the one judge. Listen to John chapter 3, verse 35 and 36. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's clear. That's truth. There's one way. Jesus is the only way. Matthew 10, verse 34, this is Jesus speaking, and he says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have come not to bring peace, but a sword. And the context of what Jesus is saying here, he's not advocating for war between nations. He's talking about he's come to be the dividing line between all peoples. Are you in Christ? Will you trust in Christ or will you not? And it is in a sense he's come to divide. He has come to separate the sheep from the goats. He hasn't come to just sort of give everybody a hug and sing kumbaya songs. He is the Lord. He is truth. You must trust in Jesus, or you will be separated from him forever. This is the clear witness of Scripture. John chapter 9, verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world. And this is after he heals the man born blind. I can't wait to get to John chapter 9. For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, 
and those who see may become blind. In other words, those who think that they see in their religious pride are actually blind. And the blind I will give sight to. But he says, I've come to judge for judgment into this world. So Jesus has come, and he is truth. And truth is a dividing line. Truth is clear. Truth is exclusive. Truth is Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. But Jesus has also come with compassion and grace. Listen to what he says in John 8, verses 10 and 11, where he is, he is coming to this woman who has been caught in the very act of adultery. She is surrounded by her crowd of accusers with stones in their hands, ready to stone this woman. And he asks the crowd, who, who among you has no sin? Let him throw the first stone. And then they all drop their stones and they walk away. And in John 8, verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Meaning your accusers. Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. This graciousness of Jesus to stoop down and care for and forgive and then empower this broken woman, this broken sinner who is a picture of all of us. And then one of the most beautiful passages in all of the Bible, Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus says, come to me. Now again, this is the same Jesus who is coming to judge the world and who if you don't trust in the wrath of God will remain on you. But this is the same Jesus who's this true, he's the lion, he's the victor, he is the conqueror, he's the man of war that we read about in Exodus 15. And that same Jesus is this same Jesus that he speaks of in Matthew 11. Listen to what he says, how he describes himself. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. So the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who has come to judge, the one who has not come to bring peace but a sword, describes his heart as gentle and lowly. And he says, you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We just sang about this truth. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. It makes me think of Richard Sibbs, the great Puritan preacher. He said that there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. And do you see this, do you see this apparent dichotomy from our perspective? That Jesus is full of truth, but yet also grace? How do these two things join together? Jesus is full of both. He's not one or the other. And here's, here's the point for us. We are all prone to distort Jesus by emphasizing one aspect of his fullness to the neglect of the other. Maybe we're people that care deeply about doctrine, and that's a wonderful thing. But if our doctrine is all truth and no grace, our doctrine becomes cold and heartless and repels. On the other side, 
Maybe we are people that emphasize the grace of Jesus and the compassion of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus to the neglect of the truth and the judgment and the exclusivity and the demands of Jesus' lordship. And what we end up doing is just giving the world around us a big hug without transformation. It leaves the world around us in a false assurance and leaves people that we're called to preach the full gospel to in their sin. Both of these distortions are errors. Both distort Jesus. Here's my question for me, for us as a church, for you as an individual, and it's the application of this truth. Which aspect of Jesus' fullness are you prone to neglect? What about you? What about you? What about us as a church? What's our culture? I fear that maybe generally one of the things that we have to have constant vigilance about is that people like us, churches like us that care deeply about doctrine, we talk a lot about Puritans and reformers and historic things and you got a pastor who quotes Chalcedonian creeds and you know, all these things, Calvin, those are wonderful truths. But listen, dear ones, good theology should soften the heart, not harden it. Good theology should make us more meek, more gentle, more compassionate, more long-suffering, without causing us to fall into the other side of the ditch of a kind of kumbaya sort of unbiblical compassion. And it is a mature Christian and a mature church that can walk the middle gospel road. This world needs both. It needs churches that are utterly clear and full of compassion. It needs a Jesus preached to them that is full of grace and truth. Oh, God, give us help. Give us help to live this way. For those in this church that, 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 that are, you know, you're just easily angered about everything. And you think that the sky is falling. And you think that just because of the last 15 or 20 years, the cultural winds have blown in such a way in our country that everything is going to hell in a handbasket. You may be prone to center more on truth to the neglect of grace. And for those of you who just kind of want everybody to get along and hate any sort of spiritual confrontation or hard verses, you sitting in your kumbaya circle is not going to help anybody around you. And here's the thing about me, I don't know about you, I think some of you are more simple than I am. I find myself falling on off onto both ditches depending on the hour of the day. Sometimes I'm a jerk and sometimes I'm a total pushover. <laughs> Within the span of an hour. You know, sometimes I'm just a cranky doctrinal, just curmudgeon. And the next time, I'm just a heretical person that just wants everybody to get along. God, help us. Help us. Help us, Lord. Convict us of our arrogance and our humility and our self-righteousness. 
because both sides are self-righteous. Jesus is full of grace and truth. And this is, then this is John's this is John's response to that. He, it's almost like he's bursting out in praise. Verse 15, he's talking about him. John the Baptist being a witness. We'll, we'll get into the, what's going on there later on in chapter 1. But look at verse 16. He says, this fullness is, he's, it's almost like he's, he's caught up in praise as he's considering how Jesus is full of grace and truth. And he says, oh, oh, from his fullness. We have all received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Oh, what a, what a thought. Friends, consider your life. Consider your life. Praise the Lord. You shouldn't be here right now. You, there is nothing earthly in you that deserves the grace of God that he would open up your eyes to understand and believe and know the truth. There's nothing in you that's worthy of his consideration, but it's grace upon grace upon grace. And one of the things that church culture, I think, inoculates us to is we grow up in good churches like Crosspoint, and we kind of think stuff should be handed to us. And oh, let the gospel that's preached in gospel preaching churches also Cut against the pride that so easily develops in those gospel preaching churches. Grace upon grace. You shouldn't be here right now. You shouldn't know the Lord. But from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. Let's hurry on. Truth three. Number three. Jesus is the main point of the Bible. Now, we need to say more. What I mean by that is that when we read the scriptures, we should have a sense that Jesus is the center, He's his work, what, what the triune God is doing, what the Father is doing in the Son as it's applied by the Spirit, that God would dwell with his people is the main point of the Bible. Let's look at verses 17 and 18 as we land this plane, come to the table. For the law, speaking of the Old Testament law, was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So verse 17, John is saying the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Now, if we don't read that carefully, we might be tempted to think, oh, well, he's saying, you know, the Old Testament was this law. And it was kind of hard, and God was strict. But now, praise God, thank, thankfully we live in the New Testament era, and now grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. As if these two, some people read this wrongly, as if, you know, that was what used to be the Old Testament, and now, thank goodness, we live now, and boy, isn't it awesome that we live in this time of grace and truth, which has come through Jesus. And that is a misunderstanding of what John is saying here, and it's a misunderstanding of the Bible itself. John is not saying, like a lot of, I think, poorly taught Christians believe, that the Old Testament is about this God of wrath and the New Testament is about a God of grace. That's not what John is saying here in verse 17. What I believe he is saying is that the law of Moses in the Old Testament is a shadow, it's a sign, it's a huge finger of God pointing to the new. The law of Moses 
is itself gracious because it's pointing to Christ. The law is meant to drive us to God. So there's no contradiction between the law and grace. In order for grace to be grace, the law must come and shoo us, as it were, to grace. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 says. The writer of Hebrews, I think he tells us this very thing. He says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So the sacrifices of the Old Testament law that you'll get to eventually when you get to Leviticus in your reading plan, and you'll be tempted to speed up, and I think that's okay, but still read it. What are they meant? They're a kind of shadow that are pointing to something. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is that the law has a purpose. The law was never meant to save. The law is like a light that is turned on that exposes the dirt in the room. We can't see the dirt and the dust on the tables and on the carpet when it's dark, but the light is turned on and we can see it. The law exposes, it reveals, and it's turned on and it shows us our sin. It shows us the holiness of God and it shows us what is needed, but it in itself cannot actually do the job of taking away the dirt. It's pointing to the one that can. And that's what Hebrews is saying here. Not only is it pointing to Jesus who fulfills the law, who satisfies God's holiness on the cross, but it's also showing us how then we should live. So when we read the Old Testament as a New Testament Christian, we not only see the gospel in it and all these sacrifices, but all these precepts and the way that God commands Israel to live. Although they are not necessarily on us as binding today, they still still, in a sense, inform us about how we should live in obedience to God. They give us principles by which we see the seriousness of God and us being a distinct people from the world around us. That's what Paul, I think, is getting to in Galatians 3. He's saying that this law holds us captive. It's like a guardian or a schoolmaster so that we might come to Jesus and so that we might not be justified or saved by our ability to fulfill the law, but we would be justified by Christ. In other words, it's like a schoolmaster that's leading us to Jesus. The law, in a sense, is meant to cause us to let, to, to let go of our attempts to save ourselves and to cling to Christ. That's the purpose of the law. And that's what I think Moses is getting at here. And he says then in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. So this Jesus, he's come to us. He has broken down the barrier that our sin put between us and God that the law could only expose, but it couldn't remove. Jesus has broken down that wall so that we can come to God. He's opened the eyes of the blind. He's set the prisoner free. He's given life to the dead. And now, and this is the point of John's prologue, the first 18 verses, now God has come to us and we can see him. We can know him. We can behold him. 
Which then, this final application before we come to the table, what are we to make of this? Well, we, as we read verses 17 and 18, we, we can know that we should read the Bible through a gospel-centered lens. We, we read the Bible. What do we mean by that? Not, not just that we would only see the work of Jesus on the cross, although that's the center of the Bible, but that we would see the full work of redemption throughout the scriptures. And we see in the beginning creation and fall, and then the beginning of restoration and redemption and awaiting the final consummation of his people. The whole Bible is one unified story about how God was with man and man separated himself from God and then how God rejoins himself, reconciles himself so that God can be with man again. And we see that in Jesus. That's the point of John. That's the point of John verses, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, that we would see him, know him. He's at the Father's side, and he has made the Godhead known to us. Friends, there's so many things vying for our attention. There's so many things that you need to pay attention to in this day, but nothing is more important than you anchoring your life, anchoring your week on this, that Jesus is God in the flesh. He's come to you, dear sinner. He's come to us, and we can behold him, and we can live in him, and we can cling to him, and we can rest in him, and we can run again to him as we need grace upon grace upon grace. And that's why Jesus, after, on the night that he was betrayed, instituted this meal that we're about to partake. And he had some bread and some wine, and he broke it, and he poured it, and he said, take this bread and drink this cup, and it's meant to remind you regularly of the day when God became man and came to you and you can see him, you can trust him, you can cling him. All of your hope is in him. Remember this, because this is the central point of life. Remember him, behold him, full of grace and truth. You must trust in him, but he's for sinners. And we see that when we come to this table. So when we take this bread and this cup, this is not just some monthly rote tradition. This is us beholding God in the work and person of Jesus as we take the bread and cup. In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and then the band's going to come lead us in a song of worship to, for us to think deeply, for us to consider Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that we should examine ourselves, that we should remember Christ. And when you're ready, if you're a believer, you're welcome to come to the table nearest you to retrieve the elements, the little cup that contains a wafer on the top, and then peel back one more layer of the juice, and Springer will lead us as a faith family to receive together. If you're a believer in Jesus, and you believe this gospel that we have preached today, you're welcome to come to this table with this church family. If you're not a believer in Jesus, we, we encourage you not to take this meal because we don't want you to do something that would say that you believe something that you don't yet believe. So you should just Stay in your seat. If you want to speak more, more, uh, more further about what it means to trust in Christ, any of the pastors or any Christian that you know around you would be more than glad to talk to you more about it. But now, the people of God, the children of God are coming to behold 
Jesus together in this meal. Let me pray. Lord, help us. We need to see Jesus. We need to behold him. We need to encounter the biblical Jesus, the one who is full of grace and truth, truth and grace, inseparable, truly man, truly God. Not more truth than grace and not more grace than truth. Perfectly united. Exactly what we need. The only thing we need for salvation and life and godliness. May we see him. May we behold him. May we be transformed by him. And any that are hearing this for the first time and you're giving them a heart to believe, Lord, would they be reconciled by him to you through faith in Jesus alone. I pray this in his name. Amen.